Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. The incomes that can accrue to households from palm oil production can double, if not triple, monthly incomes. And when you've got large swathes of the population, which is very poor, this can really shift people out of absolute or quite extreme poverty into a much better standard of living. It's just interesting that the involvement of European NGOs and European governments and so on in actually driving the politics of the sector is very significant, given that it's only consuming about 15% of Indonesia's overall palm oil production. In this episode, the impact of the resource economy on communities in Indonesia. Here to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Indonesia has long depended on producing and exporting resources to meet its economic needs. The spice trade induced the Dutch to colonise the archipelago over two centuries ago. And today, important Indonesian exports include petroleum, tin, timber, palm oil and rubber. But the resources sector in Indonesia, like those in many other developing economies, makes millionaires or billionaires of the few, and often leaves the many to eke out a subsistence. So what are the local dynamics at play in the global game of resource extraction? How do large corporations gain an advantage in an economy like Indonesia's? What redress can ordinary workers hope to have if they've been wronged? And we all rely on resources to fuel our lifestyles. So what's the role of global consumers and investors in ensuring a sustainable industry? Joining me in the studio to examine the impact of two key resource-based industries on Indonesian society are political economist Dr Rachel DePros and transnational governance expert Dr Kate MacDonald. Both Kate and Rachel are from the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Welcome back to Ear to Asia, Rachel, and welcome Kate. Thanks very much for having us. Thanks, Ali, for having us. Let's start with a big picture look at the importance of the resources sector generally to Indonesia. Rachel, how significant is it? We've already pointed out that we're talking about a pretty vast array of resources. I think the resource sector is one of the more important sectors for Indonesia for gross domestic product and for exports. Indonesia is very well known for its oil and gas exports, uh, for many, many different minerals from tin to ore to bauxite and others, but also for its agribusiness sector, including palm oil and other sorts of agricultural products that it exports. If we take, for example, the palm oil sector, it's a 20 plus billion dollar export sector. So resources generally as a contributor to GDP? Very large, a significant proportion of those that get exported. Obviously, some of that's used locally in the domestic market, but a large proportion is exported as well. And Kate, is it also an incredibly important source of funds for the government, given the relatively low tax revenue that's collected in Indonesia? Yeah, I mean, and particularly in terms of the overall impact on the economy, you know, particularly the impact as a source of foreign exchange is really important when we're talking about palm oil and some of the export-based commodities as well. Well, let's focus on both palm oil, which of course uh, is often in the headlines because of environmental concerns, and also tin. And if we can look at them as indicative of some of the issues that face Indonesia, Rachel, let's start with tin. What is tin used for today and how big an industry is it in Indonesia? 
Tin's generally considered a global strategic resource. So these are the sorts of resources that governments, consumers, companies rely on for our really essential goods. So tin in particular, and particularly Indonesia's tin, because it's a very, very high quality, it's estimated about 90% of the high quality tin globally comes from Indonesia. And it's used for many of the products that we use every day. So all of our smartphones, computers, cars, it's the solder that helps hold all of the electronics together. Apple and Samsung and other very, very large conglomerates can't produce these products that we demand, like smartphones, without it. So you can imagine for those companies, it's an incredibly important resource to access and it doesn't exist everywhere. And actually in Indonesia, you find tin is concentrated in a couple of quite small places. So it has huge implications for the economies in those places. Two places that we've been looking at with our colleagues at the University of Gajamada in Indonesia are the islands of Bangka and Belitung, which form one province in Indonesia, where most of Indonesia's tin comes from. And tin is also relatively easy to extract, isn't it? Unlike many other commodities. And that's important because it means much easier for smaller players to be involved. Indonesia does mine tin through large mining equipment and mine sites. And for that sort of mining, you require a particular type of licence, usually issued by the national government. But because tin is this mineral that actually, if you sort of picked up a handful of sand on the beach in places like Bunker and Balutong, you can actually see it sparkling through the sand. And it's quite easy to extract. Uh, You don't need lots of chemicals. So obviously with large companies extracting, they can do it at scale. But uh, small scale miners, so what we call artisanal miners, individuals or sometimes groups or uh, medium sized firms can mine that fairly easily. In an island where that's the primary livelihood, where the entire industry and and sector is sort of set up around that, it becomes an incredibly important source of livelihood for local people if they can't get one of the few jobs that exist in the larger industries. And we'll go back to the impact, I guess, on local people in a minute. But Kate, is it similar with palm oil? If we look at the number of artisanal miners in tin, do we see that same story with palm oil? Yeah, so something like around 40%. So a very significant proportion of the palm oil production within Indonesia is through smallholders. And that's grown over time as the palm oil industry um, has expanded and supported by the World Bank and supported by the Indonesian government. It is quite a significant part of the overall production now. And globally, demand for palm oil is enormous, isn't it? And, and yet at the same time, there's massive pressure over deforestation about the threat that palm oil clearing poses to various species, including orangutans, and yet that demand is showing no sign of waning. Absolutely. And there are certainly contradictions, which many like to point out, between the pressure that comes from Europe and other sort of Western buyers for these commodities, the demands for increased environmental sustainability at the same time that the demand and the consumption for the product continues. Having said that, I mean, the demand for the consumption of palm oil from somewhere like Europe, it's still only about 15% of Indonesia's palm oil exports. So that's certainly significant. It's just interesting that if you look at the way that the involvement of 
European NGOs and European governments and so on in actually driving the politics of the sector is very significant, given that it's only consuming about 15% of Indonesia's overall production. And then, you know, over half of it is actually for domestic consumption, and then a lot of the rest is actually exported into other parts of Asia. Yeah, so one of the largest destinations of Indonesia's crude palm oil exports is actually to India. It's probably about 65%, but also to the Netherlands and Singapore and Spain and Italy. So you can see there's this mix of countries in Asia and Europe and beyond that are purchasing Indonesia's palm oil. And they're using it for all manner of products. I mean, Unilever and some of the enormous conglomerates internationally that produce many, many different sorts of products will use palm oil in everything from chocolate to our soaps and shampoos to just general cooking oil. And a big proportion of people in lower income countries rely on it for cooking oil. So it isn't all exported as well. And when you look at local small players being responsible for around 40% of production, as Kate was mentioning, those smaller players, both in palm oil and tin, must be incredibly difficult to regulate. Yes. So in terms of the palm oil sector, they're small hold producers. In Indonesia, it's actually strongly encouraged because the incomes that can accrue to households from palm oil production, for example, can double, if not triple monthly incomes. And when you've got large swathes of the population, which is very poor, this can really shift people out of absolute or quite extreme poverty into a much better standard of living, fund their children's health costs, education, general consumption in the household each month. So it becomes an incredibly important commodity. And there's a lot of policies that are set up in Indonesia to support these sorts of agribusinesses for smallholders, and it's encouraged. Tin? Uh, Is tin the same? Tin is a little bit more controversial, mainly because for many, many decades, since the Dutch, if not before, most of the tin industry has been controlled by very, very large corporations, including the state-owned enterprise, which is known as PT Tima, a Tima meaning tin. did diversify a little bit a couple of decades ago and other players were able to enter the market, but this has predominantly been dominated by large mining companies. So when you've got that very, very, very strong history of large corporations with the huge licences to extract tin... Once you sort of introduce competition into that market and thousands and thousands of small-scale tin miners, when you combine all of the tin that those small-scale miners are producing, that actually can destabilise the market a little bit because suddenly you've got sources of unregulated supply which doesn't necessarily incur the same royalties and taxes that the bigger companies might Kate, what does it look like on the ground when you've got all these competing interests? So you've got the massive big players who have got a global demand imperative. You've got these smaller players who have got a local livelihood imperative. You've got a national government that's got a revenue imperative. You've got an environment that needs a sustainable industry. What does all that look like on the ground? Well, there's certainly quite a bit of tension and conflict that gets created as those different interests are brought together sort of competing over scarce resources and competing over the benefits and the profits that are produced 
within the industry. So there are a number of sources of controversy and conflict that have been associated with the expansion of the palm oil industry. Perhaps the issues that have received the most visibility amongst consumers and sort of publics in Western countries has been associated with deforestation and the associated impact for biodiversity, sort of iconic images of orangutans standing amidst the smoking forests and so on has been something that's really captured the imagination. But at the same time, there are big tensions around land conflicts when people are displaced from their land or lose access to forest resources through the expansion of production. And in fact, the Jakarta Post reported just a couple of months ago that there are something like 306 plantation-related conflicts impacting 52,000 families. Mm. Or some numbers have doubled that. Different organisations put out different estimates. But yeah, very significant numbers of sort of low-level conflicts that sometimes flare up in in forms of violence, but usually they're sort of more low-level conflicts that often endure over a really extended period of time. You talked about that iconic picture of the the orangutans in the middle of the burnt field, and palm oil is one industry where international bodies have been very actively involved. How does that sit at the national and the local level? What is their role, if you like, for want of a better word? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. As I mentioned before, although the... European mainly, the sort of Western markets for palm oil aren't a huge percentage. They're significant enough and they're significant enough for some of the really big multinational processing and trading companies that are quite powerful within the palm oil sector that mobilisation of NGOs and so on within Europe around some of these issues, around particularly deforestation, biodiversity loss, and then the impacts of that for climate change, particularly when there's sort of peat lands that are being deforested, which has a huge impact on climate change. So the kind of mobilisation which has occurred, particularly within Europe, um, has actually had a really big impact on the sector. And then sort of as time's gone on and, you know, particularly since the European Union has developed its own environmental safeguards associated with its renewable energy targets, part of which has has involved biofuels, that's also really ramped up the pressure on the palm oil sector to try and increase safeguards around environmental sustainability. Because even though in terms of the global market, for palm oil, biofuels are not a particularly significant figure, something sort of in the order of magnitude of 5% of Indonesian palm oil anyway. In the context of some European countries, it's much more significant than that. Germany, I think it's something like 40% of their palm oil consumption is actually going into the biofuels sector. And that's a very heavily regulated sector. So the pressure from those international actors is actually quite significant. Uh, Rachel, significant on the industry, where does that intersect locally? How does international pressure work? How does it influence, can it influence at a really local village level? I think it can influence and also some of those influences are limited. You know, in addition to the social and environmental safeguards that for gaining large licences, many companies, multinational or otherwise, are meant to meet. We have sort of those set in various global forums. So, for example, in, in climate change, it draws on many of the aspects of the United Nations declarations on, on the rights of Indigenous peoples, which sort of sets out uh, various sorts of values and principles that countries have signed up to to protect Indigenous rights and make sure that they are consulted 
and give what's known as free prior and informed consent um, to the lands and forests of which they are stewards to be handed over as a part of these sorts of large licences and concessions. A lot of those principles evolved sort of out of Latin America where we saw large swathes of the Amazon being deforested for timber and so on. And you find those processes happening in Asia as well. But but they're principles, they're not law. Exactly. So a couple of things are happening. One is that there's big debates in the Indonesian context as to who is Indigenous because these are not settler colonial societies. These are very multi-ethnic societies where everyone across the archipelago could be considered Indigenous. So then it happens to, well, who was born in that very, very local region and have they been consulted on implementing these large concessions. Where it gets more complicated is a lot of these principles were developed around, for example, uh, deforestation. And you find that palm oil, for example, is planted on previously deforested areas that have been felled for timber. And in some ways, it sort of rehabilitates and uses this land that is not necessarily be able to be used otherwise. Where it becomes very messy is where there are companies looking for licences for areas that are on areas of virgin forest to replace with palm oil. And that's, at least in our research, a key area where you tend to get greater degrees of conflict on the ground because the rights of customary communities have been recognised in a statement from the Constitutional Court in 2013. That is now challenging whether the state has the right to issue licences. And take people's land. Exactly, and take these lands. A lot of the conflicts are around land rights and access. Sometimes they're even around ecosystem development where a patch of land has a particular type of licence to try and rehabilitate it, but it, it may restrict access to those local communities in the interim. And this is where you get into the big politics of climate change because often climate change mitigation projects are about protecting patches of land that are heavily forests or improving the biodiversity on those lands to keep those carbon sinks there. But these are also places forest-dwelling communities are, are living there. If they haven't appropriately given their consent, suddenly they don't have access to their traditional livelihoods or even new livelihoods which are emerging. So I think the way it plays out in Indonesia is very much contingent on the local context and whether you've got multiple livelihood options or really just one One, or two. One option. And in terms of the International Arbiter, Kate, tell us about organisations like the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, which has mediated between company and community. Okay, so the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil is an organisation that was set up um, very much led by some of the big international companies together with big international NGOs, particularly WWF, who've been involved in sort of campaigning in this area for a long time. And the idea is that it's set up as a standard-making organisation where social and environmental standards to regulate the sustainable Um, quote-unquote, production of palm oil are negotiated directly between companies at all stages of the supply chain, from the 
finances of the sector um, through the big food processing companies like Nestle and Unilever, and then through to the big trading and production companies and down to the plantation level. So they all have representation because they've all got very different interests and perspectives in terms of what standards are reasonable. And then you've got representation from social NGOs and from environmental NGOs as well. And they negotiate standards. And so it's really a forum where they work out what standards are going to apply for the companies that sign up. And then they have their own auditing systems to to try and provide some assurance that those standards are actually being implemented on the ground. So at the beginning, that's all they were. And then it became clear as the organisation developed that they had a huge issue with conflict because as we were talking about before, the conflicts are recurrent throughout the sector. And so they figured out pretty quickly they really needed to set up a specialised complaints handling system, which has continued to evolve and become more and more complex over time. So they are the effective mediator? In many cases. I mean, of course, within Indonesia, there are a whole range of other government and sort of judicial, quasi-judicial systems which also get involved in mediating these conflicts and grievances when they arise. So it's a very multi-layered, complex kind of a space. And these international organisations come in over the top of that, sometimes operating in parallel with the government systems for trying to manage the the conflicts. Um, And so communities or NGOs working with the communities bring a complaint where there's an intractable conflict to the organisation. They can either try and just do informal mediation. There's also a formal panel that can be set up with representation of the different companies and NGOs to try and make a decision about what's reasonable and everyone's supposed to comply with that. Sometimes there is actually coordination between these external mediation processes and the Indonesian government, you know, usually at district and provincial level. And when that coordination is able to be set up, it provides a much stronger basis for actually getting a sustainable outcome and an outcome that's going to be monitored and actually backed up on the ground. So these international bodies have legitimacy on the ground? They have credibility? Well, that's a very interesting question. Not always. They really have to tiptoe very very softly and try and make clear that they're respecting the sovereignty of the governments, you know, in Indonesia, also Malaysia, which is the other big country actually where the headquarters for the um, secretariat for the RSPO is based. And there are big concerns, you know, within the Indonesian and Malaysian governments, also within the industry associations in both countries about the perception that an organisation like the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil is basically a colonial entity, you know, coming in again and telling them, telling what, them to do. what to do in their own country. Exactly. And th- there is very much that risk um, that if an organisation like that and international NGOs and international companies come in and start throwing their weight around, they do undermine their own legitimacy. And so it's a delicate diplomatic sort of process to try and come in and, and show that they can make themselves useful, try and show that actually they have the support of local actors And they're trying to keep very different audiences happy. At the one time, they have to try and keep audiences in Europe who are very concerned about deforestation and biodiversity and the encroachment on um, forests through new clearings and so on, very concerned about that, pushing for stronger and stronger and stronger safeguards. But if they push too hard on that, they undermine their own legitimacy. And actually, there was a period of time when the main industry body, GAPKI, within Indonesia was 
very supportive of the RSPO. And then there came a point where they actually pulled out and the Indonesian government set up its own ISPO, the Indonesian Sustainable Palm Oil Organisation, which has less stringent standards, let's say, but which is sort of rolled out and mandated across the whole sector, whereas RSPO is only for a certain proportion of the sector that are heavily into the export markets. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by Indonesia political economist Dr Rachel DePros and transnational governance expert Dr Kate MacDonald. We're discussing the impact of the resource economy on communities in Indonesia. Given that, that there are limits to what a global body can do and that there are just so many different types of conflict Kate, do international bodies provide any form of redress? And what does that mean for these smaller miners and for other landholders if they feel that they are not getting a good deal? When we think about what impact these sorts of international organisations have and what kinds of redress or what contributions to managing these complex issues that they can provide, there are a couple of levels to that. So One dimension of the question relates to the extent to which they're able to provide remedy for particular communities or workers or whatever it might be who are affected by these conflicts. In those cases, sometimes they can make a contribution in very individual cases, you know, where they've been able to go in, they've been able to provide resources and capacity support, they've been able to exert very direct leverage through the supply chain and through the market pressure on the companies involved to actually get them to mediate, to provide some compensation, perhaps to give certain bits of contested land back to communities. So there certainly are cases where they make a difference to individual communities, but that's the minority. It's really a drop in the ocean if we're talking about trends within the sector as a whole, and particularly if we're concerned with big issues like climate change or biodiversity loss, which are driven not by what's happening in one particular community, but by what's happening across the sector as a whole. If we want to look in a bigger picture way at the impact of these sorts of international organisations, then we also need to think about redress at a more systemic level. So I think where they really can make a difference is where they can bring a source of leverage or they can bring resources or they can help to build coalitions um, that just shift the dynamics within the sector at the local level. If they're able to sort of act as as a lever in a sense or as a catalyst for broader forms of change, that's where they can really be useful. And that can happen in different ways. Sometimes it is about through providing incentives or more negative forms of pressure, you know, threats that you're going to cut off or lose your contract with these huge buyers, they're able to put pressure on some of the big companies at the local level to actually change their practices. And so there are a couple of issues where I think you can see some change, particularly around protection for high conservation value land and to a lesser extent, but also significantly around some of the issues of free prior and informed consent for Indigenous communities, where they have actually formed coalitions with companies who are affected by this and actually gone to the government and said, you have to do something about this. There are cases where companies who've signed up to the RSPO have committed under the RSPO standards not to clear or sort of plant on high conservation value land. And then local government said, well, if you're not using that, we're going to give it to someone else. And so they're kind of losing out then. And they then have incentives to go and lobby government. And in at least one province, there have actually been some legislative changes, not directly as a result of the RSPO, but in part supported by some of those coalitions. So I think those are the sorts of interesting examples where you can see an impact, where it's able to generate leverage to build coalitions to actually have some bigger impact on the sector. And that's very much a positive 
when you look at the supply chain for major commodities like palm oil and like tin, it provides a massive potential tool of control, doesn't it? Because the influence there, I won't buy your tin, I won't buy your palm oil if you don't do what's expected of you. Yes, so that's the flip side of the coin. And It's sort of easy to start assuming that in places where you don't tend to have as many conflicts on the surface, and when we use the term conflict here, we don't necessarily mean violence. Uh, We mean sort of protracted contestation that, you know, potentially prevents an extractive activity going forward or everybody downs tools or whatever it might be. Nonetheless, these are tensions in communities, disputes, and sometimes at scale and sometimes protests and to the point of riots and and other sorts of actually more violent implications. And so it's easy to assume when you look at patterns of conflict and violence in different countries that where they're absent, things are probably running pretty well. But that's not necessarily the case. Uh, It may not be as it seems. No, it may not be as it seems because it may be that people are dissatisfied and their cost of living is going up because of it's difficult to get clean water now from polluted waterways. Food crops are being replaced by things like palm oil. So other costs of living are going up and hence there's more pressure on your household to earn a living in whatever way you can. When you're a part of a large supply supply chain of something like palm oil, where over time you've got to know the local guy that comes and picks up your bunches of palm kernels or fresh fruit bunches as they're called, or that's organised through your village or through the village head or it's through your ethnic association or religiously, however that community is organised, there's quite a lot of pressure then to follow suit around voting preferences, supporting particular actors over other actors and so on, which actually feeds into the political system. Did did we see that in the most recent election? We've certainly seen in particular districts where a large company has supported one candidate or the other, and you see this a lot in Sumatra actually, where some of the older parties like Goldcar have long had a a stronghold in that area. There's a very well-developed political system around that. So... You know, large companies can support indirectly, it's not necessarily overt and direct, but can indirectly support particular candidates and the whole supply chain can be set up to reinforce that. So local brokers with strong connections to Malaysia, Singapore, China and elsewhere, which were long developed through timber felling and selling those products, then gain greater power, for example, in the palm oil industry because they've grown their own capital wealth and power. They can say, we won't buy your palm oil anymore. We won't collect your timber. We won't collect your other produce if you sort of don't follow suit on our preferences around these candidates. And equally, because of the strong livelihood imperative of people to survive, they won't necessarily contest when things are not going particularly well in an industry. So where, Kate, does that leave the international policy makers, the certification bodies, the the organisations that are, you know, in reality outside that political structure? Well, I think it leaves them in a position where they need to be self-aware about the extent of their own leverage and they have to try and be smart in the way that they use that leverage. Another source of leverage that has been quite important in the past has been through financing of the sector, 
because the World Bank's had a role in the past in directly financing some of the growth of private sector companies within the sector, big banks out of Europe, HSBC, and some of the others that have been quite active in the sector. And that has given them leverage that they've then been able to use in putting conditions on the social and environmental practices then of companies who accept their money. So, you know, in in some contexts, that can be a, a powerful driver. The challenge is that as time's gone on, they're actually less important now. There's a lot of finance coming from Asian banks and from Asia in general. And actually, these Western lenders don't have the leverage that they used to have through that channel. The way in which they shape their strategies has to be reflective of an understanding that they can't just dictate the rules. They actually have to negotiate it. They have to try and build these wider coalitions. Is there also, though, momentum building? So just recently we saw the Singapore-listed Wilmar International, which is a major palm oil trader. They promised to take a harder line to ensure sustainability. So if you get a, a massive player like that making some commitments, does that help to build momentum for others to follow suit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly positive when some of those big players make big commitments like that. And it's even more positive when there are coalitions, you know, when it's not just one. And there have been examples of these coalitions that have formed. Um, There was sort of a group of some of these big processing and trading companies that got a bit frustrated about the deadlock within the RSPO. And they sort of, they didn't break away, but they kind of formed their RSPO plus kind of coalition that tried to have stronger standards and make unilateral commitments and and Which are audited or not? Because this goes back to that question of what on paper versus yeah. what's in reality. Well, this is this is one of the challenges of these unilateral commitments is that it's it's essentially a voluntary corporate responsibility commitment. So no, it doesn't have the same degree of oversight as these multi-sectoral processes which have the the oversight of NGOs essentially to give a little bit more assurance and credibility to them. But at the same time, these are actors that at least have legitimacy within Indonesia and Malaysia and within the region. So if they're able to take seriously a commitment to actually try and bring about broader change in the sector. Although, again, they're still not powerful enough to just dictate the rules when others don't share the same interests and market position as them. Certainly, that's a positive move. At the same time, though, that's still sitting in a context where their objective is clearly not to bring about a structural shift in the consumption of commodity products in a way that critics of the RSPO or critics of these corporate responsibility programs would want to see. The RSPO very much was set up as a way of protecting the palm oil industry and helping it to grow, not, not as a in way... In a sustainable of, way. In a, well, in a sustainable way on one understanding of sustainability. But, you know, there are a lot of groups who would argue that it can't be sustainable, that actually what we should do is stop eating so many processed foods, you know, and actually cut back on our consumption full stop of some of these these products. And so something like the RSPO or responsible commitments from companies isn't going to solve that, right? So, so it kind of depends what you mean by sustainability. It also raises questions about if it's not palm oil, then what other oil is it or what other product ends up replacing mm. it? And what are the implications of growing that sector environmentally, yeah. coconut oil, soy? I mean, I think this comes back to something you were saying earlier, Rachel, about the distinction between planting palm oil on lands that have already been cleared and used for other purposes and then they're being replanted versus the planting of palm oil through new clearing. That's an incredibly important distinction because one of the things about palm oil that the palm oil sector will always highlight is to say, actually, if you do compare it to some of these other commodities that we could get vegetable oils or biofuels or whatever 
from, actually it's much more productive. You, you use a lot less land to get a certain yield of palm oil than you do if you're planting soy or rapeseed oil, you know, whatever it might be. It's much more productive. And so they sort of argue, actually, if by calling for boycotts of palm oil, that just means that you're going to go ahead and plant a whole lot of other things instead. Actually, that's worse because then you're going to have to clear more land, right? So that's one argument. But the key thing is that the EU sort of did an analysis of this recently and what they concluded was, although that is true in terms of the productivity and the yields that you get per land, that if you actually look at where the production is happening, they found that palm oil was associated with a lot more new clearing, Mm -hmm. but not just the new clearing, new clearing in areas that have high conservation value, basically wetlands, peatlands, forests that have high you know, biodiversity. So it's obviously, um, as our discussion has illustrated, a very imperfect system. And of course, it's not just Indonesia, but we are talking about Indonesia today. So I guess the ultimate question is, how do you make it better? How do you ensure that those various competing rights are, are sorted on a more equitable and a more sustainable basis? Okay. Well, does making it better mean we actually want to keep the palm oil industry in Indonesia and we just want to make it a bit more sustainable and you know protect some of the really high conservation value areas and so on? Or do you actually mean that you sort of want to drastically cut back on these kinds of tropical commodities or drastically change global consumption, which would be good for the environment, which would be very bad for the Indonesian economy? This is not win-win, is the, is it the is bottom not, line. It is not win-win, no. And, you know, sort of all the way up and down the supply chain across the different players within Indonesia, but also between different producing countries. You know, if palm oil were to go down and soy were to to replace it, well, that's a big win for Brazil and Argentina. That's terrible for Indonesia and Malaysia. So what do you think better looks like? What do I think better looks like? Well, I've seen lots of interesting examples where Greenpeace has been working with some of the large conglomerates to make sure that their land certification processes and licences and their social environmental safety safeguards that they're implementing at the onset, you know, are meeting a a standard that global consumers might expect. I've seen cases where the global consumer does collectively put pressure on some of these large companies to do things in a more sustainable fashion. And you see when market share is at risk, you do see a response from those companies. I've seen some wonderful examples of local communities forming political pacts with their local leadership that they're not going to give their vote unless the candidate in question provides a certain sort of service or takes a particular approach to extraction that that community expects. So a very good example of that is in the Bunker and Belittung Islands in the tin industry. There's fairly standard tin mining on Bunker Island, but many years ago there was a large tin mine on Belittung Island just next door. But for a whole range of reasons, that mine was essentially just left there and production was moved elsewhere to the other island. That meant that the entire economy was disrupted on that island and was met with a lot of anger in that community. 
And they spent the next two decades rebuilding a diversified livelihood base, fishing, tourism. Um, but that's not been easy. And still today, that island faces massive challenges. It's very, very difficult. Two decades to get to a point where there's a diversified source of economic well-being. So when more recently that large company sought to re-enter that region through offshore mining, suction boats around the edges of the shoreline, collecting tin from those sands right near the shore and the tourist spots. That was met with great resistance from that community and essentially they put pressure on their local candidates that if they supported tin mining at scale in that island, they would not get the local vote. And that actually had an impact. Um, the local leaders who do have influence beyond that local environment are not necessarily supporting that and signing off on the various concessions that are needed to continue those activities. So I guess as a final point, it, it has to be top down and bottom, bottom up. up. Exactly. We need to find ways to incentivise all the different interest groups to find a middle ground on sustainable resource use, protection for rights of communities and environment, slightly possibly more mitigated consumer demand, being a little bit more conscious of throwing away that phone, replacing it with the latest model, choosing your products carefully because it does have knock-on effects when it's happening at scale and the demand for these products is absolutely huge globally. Top-down, bottom-up? So absolutely the top-down pathway is possible. Bottom-up pathways, absolutely. One of the big challenges, you know, we've been talking about how there are these big stories that are told about economic growth and national development and poverty reduction. But at the same time, the reality, of course, is that there are huge power inequalities and the benefits of the industry are not shared by and large with the people who are the poorest and, and the marginalised and so on. Um, who also have the weakest voice. Who have the weakest voice, exactly. And so bottom-up strategies are very challenging in that political context where business and government actors, you know, at the local level as well as at the national level have got not just interests in economic development, that's important, but also individual interests, personal interests. There are kickbacks, you know, there are, there's money for election campaigns and so on, as we spoke about. And it's very difficult in that environment for the workers or smallholders or communities who are being displaced to really organise and to have voice and to even figure out what it is that they want to articulate. This is another thing we haven't really spoken about, but something which the better kinds of interventions um, from the outside can try and do is not necessarily just charge in and dictate global standards, but actually work closely with different kinds of affected groups on the ground with particular attention to the groups that, that are weaker and more marginalised and don't already have voice and actually try and build up their own capacity and their own organisations and their own connection into local and national networks within Indonesia to actually give them greater capacity to be engaged in those debates about how those different trade-offs should be made. And often that doesn't happen. It's very hard. They're better when they're working with local coalitions, as they often do. Um, but it's very challenging. It requires resourcing that often they don't have. But I think if we're talking ideal world here, absolutely a lot of energy into supporting those those bottom-up strategies, understanding that it's political. And, and this is one of the challenges is because you're only going to get a bottom-up strategy to actually be meaningful if you're actually challenging power relations at the local level. And that's very political. And the more successful you are at doing that, 
the more likely you are to get pushback using discourses of national sovereignty and so on. So it's a very, very difficult balance between top-down and bottom-up. There is no end to the challenges that Indonesia faces with the resource sector and, as we said, challenges that many other countries face as well. I think we've got uh, the subject for a large number of Ear to Asia podcasts. (laughs) But thank you very much for joining us, uh, Rachel and Kate. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much for having us. It's been great fun. Our guests have been Indonesia political economist Dr Rachel DePros and transnational governance expert Dr Kate MacDonald, both from the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 29th of May, 2019. Producers were Kelvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.